Hello and welcome to the April 21st, 2020 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, with a summary of what's new in the journal since our last podcast. I'll start with new material related to the COVID-19 pandemic. By the way, we are fast-tracking all pandemic-related articles, and they are publicly available in a special collection on annals.org. If you are not already receiving Annals email alerts and want to know immediately when new COVID-19 related articles are available, go to annals.org and register for our alerts. The COVID-19 pandemic is an unprecedented global public health emergency. Reducing contact between infected patients and susceptible people in the population is currently the only available lever to reduce SARS-CoV-2 transmission and diagnostic testing is a critical component of control efforts. In contrast to other countries that have implemented diagnostic testing on a massive scale, the United States, hampered by limited testing capacity, has prioritized testing for specific groups of individuals. On April 13th, Annals published a review of currently available diagnostic tests for SARS-CoV-2. The review summarizes situations in which specific test types are likely to be most useful highlights key gaps in current diagnostic capacity, and discusses potential solutions. Real-time reverse transcriptase polymerase chain reaction, or RT-PCR-based assays, performed in a laboratory on respiratory specimens are the reference standard for COVID-19 diagnostics. However, point-of-care technologies and serological immunoassays are rapidly emerging. While excellent tools exist for the diagnosis of symptomatic patients in well-equipped laboratories, there remain important gaps for screening of asymptomatic people in the incubation phase, as well as for the accurate determination of live viral shedding among patients in the convalescence phase to inform de-isolation decisions. And wide availability of accurate serologic tests to document past infection are eagerly anticipated. Urgent clinical and public health needs now drive an unprecedented global effort to develop testing capacity for detection of SARS-CoV-2. During a pandemic, a reliable network of healthcare professionals in communities near where people live is vital for providing services and products for self-care and reducing anxiety and panic. The next article is a commentary that describes how Taiwan has mobilized and empowered pharmacists to effectively contribute to these efforts. You won't want to miss the On Being a Doctor essay that we published online on April 13th. It begins, quote, As physicians who have practiced internal medicine, infectious diseases, and addiction medicine in New York City for 37 years collectively, we have witnessed tremendous suffering and faced many challenges to providing care. However, we never anticipated how practicing medicine in New York City at the front line of coronavirus disease 2019 pandemic would lead to the worst days of our careers. While providing care in an urban academic medical center's medical wards, we experienced the loss of intimate connection with our patients at their most vulnerable points. We felt powerless in the face of very real fear felt by patients, trainees, and our colleagues alike. And worst of all, we were left unprotected." End quote. Authors provide heart-wrenching and inspirational insight into what it has been like to be on the front lines of the pandemic in New York City. A previous report of lung biopsies from COVID-19 patients with acute respiratory distress syndrome identified mononuclear cell infiltration, but did not identify the type of mononuclear cells. 
On April 19th, we published a report of two cases that described the type of immune cells identified by imaging mass cytometry in lung tissue from patients with COVID-19 who suffered ultimately fatal ARDS. Given that SARS-CoV-2 is a novel virus and we lack data on many aspects of its behavior, the medical community and policymakers have had to rely on models to guide decisions related to hospital capacity and social distancing recommendations. On April 14th, we published a commentary that raises concerns about the validity and usefulness of the projections from one such model, the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation model that projects deaths from COVID-19 and has garnered considerable attention, including from the US government. COVID-19 is overwhelming healthcare systems worldwide, with Italy the most affected country in Europe. As of early April 2020, more than 6,000 Italian healthcare professionals were among those infected by the virus, and 94 physicians had died. In Lombardy, the most severely hit region in terms of hospital overcrowding, physician fatalities included 20 general practitioners. As the frontline first contact for patients with suspected SARS-CoV-2 infection, General practitioners are frequently exposed to the virus and can become the source of infection spread in the communities they serve, if not adequately protected. Next is a brief research report that surveyed 450 general practitioners from Lombardy to assess the behavior and challenges in COVID-19 prevention and management. The survey results highlight some crucial aspects of healthcare professional knowledge, availability of protective equipment, and behavior deficits among surveyed physicians. Specific education on prevention and management of COVID-19 was also perceived as an important unmet need, with more than two-thirds of respondents having to self-educate because of lack of training received from public health institutions such as the Ministry of Health and local health departments. Whether interventions and improvements in these aspects will lead to more efficient control and more rapid resolution of the pandemic warrants future study. The next COVID-19 article presents an online tool that can help estimate the maximum number of COVID-19 cases that a hospital can manage per day within their catchment area, given acute and critical care resource availability. As mentioned earlier, given the paucity of data on COVID-19, the medical community and policymakers must rely on models for many decisions, such as those related to system capacity and social distancing. British statistician George E.P. Box once stated, quote, all models are wrong, but some are useful, end quote. Understanding these models and their strengths and limitations can be mind-boggling. Next is an editorial by Dr. John Wong, an Annals Associate Editor and Modeling Expert, that is an excellent summary of the differences in the various types of models so that users can be more informed and better able to determine just how wrong and also how useful a particular model might be for their own purposes. To date, few data are available on ocular samples from patients with COVID-19, although conjunctivitis has been occasionally reported among COVID-19 symptoms. During the SARS epidemic, eye exposure to infectious fluids was associated with an increased risk of SARS transmission to healthcare workers. With COVID-19, unprotected ocular exposure was thought to be responsible for infections occurring in the Wuhan Fever Clinic in January 2020. However, further studies are needed to evaluate the infectious potential of the SARS-CoV-2 RNA detected in the ocular specimens and to determine whether transmission may occur through ocular secretions. 
The next article presents the early detection of infectious SARS-CoV-2 in ocular fluids from the first confirmed COVID-19 case in Italy. Last but not least, during on being a doctor essay on the coronavirus pandemic through a medical student's eyes and an annals graphic medicine titled True Tales from the Pandemic, Telemediocrity. Those who have been spending time seeing patients virtually will appreciate this annals graphic medicine. And because medicine continues outside of the pandemic, here is what's new in annals on other topics. Using novel metrics, researchers found that 70% of electronic consultations or e-consults were appropriate based on their proposed criteria, and 81% were associated with avoided face-to-face -face visits. Study authors say these metrics provide meaningful insight into practice and may provide a rubric for comparison in future studies. E-consults can improve patient access to specialists, minimize travel, and reduce unnecessary in-person visits. However, metrics to enable study of e-consults and their effect on processes and patient care have been lacking. Researchers from Brigham Women's Hospital and Massachusetts General Hospital reviewed a random sample of 150 medical records from each of five specialties with a high volume of e-consult requests, psychiatry, hematology, dermatology, infectious diseases, and rheumatology, to assess novel metrics of e-consult appropriateness and utility. The appropriateness of each e-consult was measured by the following criteria. Could not be answered by reference to society guidelines or point-of-care resource. Were not requesting logistical information only. Were not urgent and complexity. Utility was measured by rate of avoided face-to-face -face visits within 120 days of the e-consult. The authors found 70% of e-consults to be appropriate based on their criteria, ranging from 61% in rheumatology to 78% in psychiatry. Nearly all questions were of appropriate urgency, but some were deemed too simple or too complex. Across all specialties, 81% of e-consults were associated with avoided visits, ranging from 62% in dermatology to 93% in psychiatry. Clinical guidelines recommend caution when using oral anticoagulants in patients on the anti-seizure medication Levitira C10, because animal studies suggest that the anticonvulsant acts as a P-glycoprotein inducer to reduce rivaroxaban plasma levels. However, not everyone is convinced that this drug should be avoided in patients receiving rivaroxaban because there is little or no published evidence describing this interaction in humans. Researchers from the University of Perugia in Italy report the case of a 69-year-old man who is taking rivaroxaban for atrial fibrillation and started to experience seizures in his right frontal lobe for which he was prescribed levitiracetam. Several months later, he was clinically diagnosed with recurrent transient ischemic attacks. The clinicians measured his rivaroxaban plasma levels to determine if low levels would explain the transient ischemic attacks and then changed the drug. Repeated measurement of rivaroxaban plasma levels showed a clinically relevant interaction between levetiracetam and rivaroxaban, where the drug reduced plasma levels with a particularly strong and long-lasting effect on trough levels. The clinicians believe that this interaction is clinically important, but cautioned that their study was limited and they did not measure P-glycoprotein activity in the patient. On April 21st, we published a survey of primary care physicians that found that one-third did not perceive medications to treat opioid use disorder 
to be more effective than non-medication treatment or safe for long-term use, despite conclusive evidence to the contrary. Physicians also reported low interest in treating opioid use disorder and low support for policy proposals allowing office-based physicians to prescribe buprenorphine or methadone. According to the researchers, these findings suggest that policy changes alone are unlikely to lead to widespread availability of primary care-based medication. They urge efforts to increase primary care physicians' acceptance of and willingness to prescribe medications for opioid use disorder. A series of concise articles titled Clinical Decision-Making aims to help clinicians in all stages of their careers hone vital decision-making skills. Published together in Annals on April 21st, the articles use examples to pose and answer questions about the crucial concepts and foundational science that are essential to informing the decisions clinicians must make in everyday medical practice. The series is organized by two practicing clinicians and experienced educators from Massachusetts General Hospital, Josh Metley and Katrina Armstrong. They present lessons in a straightforward manner so that clinicians may walk away from reading the series with a clear understanding of how to evaluate evidence, assess its limitations, and apply it to individual patients, among other important aspects of making clinical decisions. Topics covered in the series include weighing evidence to inform clinical decisions, using a diagnostic test, translating population evidence to individual patients, communicating risk and engaging patients in shared decision-making, incorporating perspective into clinical decisions, and avoiding cognitive errors in clinical decision-making. The series is punctuated with the graphic narrative bed blocker that literally illustrates some of the key lessons outlined in the series. The graphic medicine article describes a near-miss that might have had catastrophic consequences if diagnostic errors had gone unchecked and highlights the lessons to be gleaned from such a situation. Most of the articles in the April 21st print issue were initially published online first and mentioned in prior podcasts. New material accompanying the issues includes the latest Console Guys episode, which addresses the use of the CHADS-2 VAS score in atrial fibrillation, an Annals on Call episode on estrogen use after hysterectomy, and an inpatient notes commentary on hypertension in hospitalized patients. Also accompanying the issues are ACP Journal Club, and the Annals for Hospitalists and Annals for Educators summaries. That brings me to the end of this podcast. I hope you, your loved ones, and colleagues stay well during this challenging time for our profession. And thank you to all of you working very hard, whether on the front lines or supporting those on the front lines, to get us through this unprecedented time. Thanks also to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.